This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. All right, well, as Becca mentioned at the beginning of our service, today is a little bit different uh, than most Sundays here because today we're finishing up our three-week series on family ministry. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ash started our series by giving us an overview of family ministry to help us kind of understand what it means uh, that family ministry is our whole church family ministering to and caring for the families in our church. And last week, Pastor Robin, we had lots of fun. He invited the kids up front and uh, he taught us and gave us kind of like what they do down in kids every Sunday. So that was pretty cool. And today, uh, I get the opportunity of helping us understand Redemption Youth by sharing a bit about why we do what we do in our youth ministry on Sunday afternoons. I uh, have enjoyed this privilege immensely, and it's awesome. So I want us to, to learn a little bit about it. And to really help us understand why we do what we do, I want us to consider a question, the answer of which has really shaped the way that we serve our students and families here. And that question is this, how can we best help the children in our lives become and remain faithful followers of Jesus? How can we best help the children in our lives become and remain faithful followers of Jesus? It's been a hugely important question for us. And if you're a parent or just someone who's tried to answer this question for any length of time, what you soon find out is that there's endless answers to this question, right? In many ways, uh, it feels like attempting to, this, to answer this question is like walking into a used bookstore uh, the size of a Costco, say, for example. Uh, but rather than finding a bunch of neatly stacked books of all shapes and sizes, what you find is a disorganized hodgepodge of chaos stretching as far as your eye can see and consisting of everything from Adventures in Odyssey cassette tapes to self-published books by that super conservative mom down your street to podcasts of people ranting about the demise of the modern public school system, to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of focus on the family study guides and self-help parenting books, right? We've experienced this. And really, the more you search for an answer to this, the harder it becomes. The harder it becomes. And what happens for many parents or youth ministers like myself, who also happen to feel like there simply aren't enough hours in the day, is the zeal, the passion with which we started when seeking out an answer to this question turns quickly into tossing up our hands and saying, well, I suppose I'll try this, <laughs> right? It's published. How bad could it possibly be? <laughs> And yet, because of the sheer variety of viewpoints, one group of people gets sucked into feeling like homeschooling is the only way to raise your kids for Christ, while another group of people feel that public schooling is the best way to help a kid make their faith their own. And then there's an entire other group of parents who started their own classical Christian school and say, our Socratic teaching methods are the best way surefire way to keep your kids following Jesus. And all the while, right, as we get this, it feels like no one can ever be confident that what they're doing will work because what if, right, what if that other method is better? What if that other method was the best method 
to helping my kids stay in faith as they get older? What if? You know, a big part of what I think has led to this place of confusion and uncertainty is that over the last 200 years or so in America, there have been a large number of people and organizations and churches who essentially saw kids on one side of the street over here and any number of undesirable social trends and problems on the other side of the street. And these churches said, oh no, we'd better come up with a plan, right, to keep Uh, to help parents so that their kids don't cross the street and become like those undesirable people. we got to come up with some kind of a plan. And as a result, what we've seen happen since about the 1820s is a cyclical pattern of ministry leaders noticing societal problems, creating ministry innovations as a response to those problems, and then discovering 50 years later that those ministry innovations had become irrelevant as new problems arose. Right, so we're starting with problem, trying to fix it, and then new problems arise. And while many of the innovations created may have been good at addressing the specific problems of their day, the issue, however, was that families and churches started looking at them as long-term answers for both dealing with the undesired social issues as well as being the primary discipleship tool for their kids to help them become lifelong followers of Jesus, which is something that they were never intended to do. And as a result, just as the methods created in the 1820s became ineffective by the late 1800s, so too the models and the organizations that were developed in the early 1900s have proven over the last 30 years to be ineffective and insufficient at helping children become lifelong followers of Jesus precisely because they were never meant to do so in the first place. And unfortunately, as an American Christian community, we have compounded this problem by continuing to believe that these methods and organizations are actually sufficient. And as a result, we have seen a significant decline in the young people's church attendance in America since the late 90s. According to Gallup research, in 1998, there were 62% of people between the ages of 18 to 29, who we call young adults, ages of 18 to 29, who attended church regularly. And this was a pretty consistent number with the previous 50 years or so. However, that number has been declining rapidly in the last 20 years, and today, only 42% of young adults attend church regularly. 20% decline. And this corresponds directly with a recent study done by Barna Research, which showed that in the last two years, 64% of adults in the U.S. between those same ages, 18 and 29, have dropped out of attending church after attending regularly as children. In other words, 30 years ago, about 6 out of 10 people attended church, but today, only 4 out of 10 people attend church, and the two that dropped out were kids who were discipled by methods and organizations that are now ineffective. It's a problem. And what this decline tells us is that young people, after turning 18, are leaving the church at a rate never before seen in the history of America. And yet, rather than change the way we disciple young people, many churches and organizations are continuing with what they believe to be 
the tried and true methods, even though those methods have led to a 20% decrease in regular church attendance since the late 90s. Furthermore, this decline tells us that the entertainment-focused, seeker-friendly, heavily programmed, relational-oriented youth programs that kept people, young people in churches well into the 90s simply do not work anymore. And if we want to help the children entrusted to us become and remain faithful followers of Jesus forever, then we must change how we think about discipling kids, and we need to start by proactively considering what children need to grow in their faith instead of forcing them to participate in the things that were created to address the social problems from 50 or 100 years ago, which as we've seen are just not working. And just as a side, right, just as a side, these numbers uh, and stats aren't just data and stats to me. I'm 28, so I fit right within that demographic of the young adults mentioned, and uh, I saw a lot of my friends leave the church. I still see it. I saw my friends from youth group, many of whom I'm friends with still, drop out of going to church out of grad, after graduating high school largely because while adults were blaming them for not being devout enough, the things they experienced consistently at home and at church were ineffective at discipling and teaching them in such a way that they would actually want to follow Jesus forever. It didn't work. And so a big reason why I love that I get to work with our junior high and high school students is because I want to help them see the greatness and the magnificence of Jesus in such a way that when they graduate high school, they remain rooted in their faith in Christ with a lifelong desire to participate in his church. That's what we want, right? But how do we do this? We see the problem. How do we fix it? What do we do? How can we best help the children in our lives become and remain faithful followers of Jesus. Well, like Pastor Ash mentioned at the start of our series two weeks ago, the people most responsible for the faith development and potential future religious participation in a child's life are parents. Yes, good, you're listening, thank you. <laughs> this is a fact, though, right, that is unanimously agreed upon by researchers and scholars alike, and what they say is that all research in the United States today shows clearly that parents are by far the most important factor influencing their children's religion, not only as youth, but also after they leave home. And because of the influencing uh, the influence parents have on their children's future religiosity, they will have a greater impact than anything or anyone else as to whether or not their children will have the faith and participation in Christian community when they get older. So while we ultimately, right, we ultimately trust in God's saving activity to bring his children to him, it is clear that God has given us, and parents especially, a significant role to play in pointing kids to him. We have a huge role to play. So if we as a church, both Redemption and the Big C Church, right, all of us as a church here in America, want to successfully raise children to become lifelong followers of Jesus, then we need to prioritize, we have to prioritize the parent-child discipleship relationship over and above other ministry models. 
And to do this, we need to consider what is also the big idea for us this morning, which is that our ability as a whole church to help children become lifelong followers of Jesus is directly tied to our willingness as God's image bearers to empty ourselves for the benefit of the children and families around us. And this is a mouthful. If you like to take notes, don't worry about it. I'll have this stuff online later. So if you want to <laughs> find it later, it'll be there. Our ability, right, as a whole church to help children become lifelong followers of Jesus is directly tied to our willingness as God's image bearers, to empty ourselves for the benefit of the children and families around us. Therefore, to understand this, we're going to spend the rest of our time answering three questions that I think will help us understand our big idea. First, what does it mean to be an image bearer of God, right? What, is, what does that mean? If that's what we're called to, what does it mean? Second, how might being an image bearer of God then shape our relationship with the children and families in our lives? And third, we just want to kind of reflect on how is all of that, how is all of the above informed what we now do in Redemption Youth? So what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? How might being an image bearer of God shape our relationship with the children and families in our lives? And how has that informed Redemption Youth? So we'll start with first question, what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? Turn with me, if you would, to that passage Roscoe read, Genesis 1, 26 to 31. I want to read it for us again. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. You know, when we read this passage, or really any passage, it can be easy to miss what's going on behind the scenes. And as a result, we can miss the richness of what's happening. Earlier this fall in youth, we actually talked about this passage. I think it was the second one that we talked about. And I'll tell you the same thing that I told them when we started to look at it. Uh, and that is this. If we want to understand as much as we can about what the Bible is saying, both here and in all of Scripture, we need to understand as much as possible about the original context in which it was written because the Bible was written in a unique context to a specific people at a specific time, and if we don't understand their context, we're never going to be able to make sense of what's going on or how it applies to us or any of those things, right? Context is king. That's what I <laughs> have been belabored over, over and over in school. So what was happening here? Well, at the time, the Israelites received the book of Genesis and, the, and really the rest of the Pentateuch. The Akkadian Empire was a powerful nation in ancient Mesopotamia. The Akkadian Empire was a powerful nation. 
And given the reach and the power of the Akkadians, the Israelites were no doubt aware of the Akkadians and of their religious beliefs. This stuff spread just like stuff spreads to us today. And of particular familiarity was the Akkadian creation narrative known as the Epic of Atrahasis. The Epic of Atrahasis. We, we talked about this in kids, so I see a lot of them nodding. The Epic of Atrahasis. And the Epic of Atrahasis goes like this. Here's the story. Before people... There were powerful gods who did work on the earth to get their food and their shelter. And over time, as they were doing this, these gods grew tired of this work and decided to make littler gods, tiny gods, to do the work for them. And so they did it, and after a little while, they got annoyed and grew tired of their work, and so they essentially went on strike. They said, we're not doing your work anymore. We don't want to do it. And so the bigger gods got frustrated, and they decided to create humans who would do the work all the gods didn't want to do. And for a while, this arrangement worked out well. The humans did the work. The gods, littler gods, bigger gods, got all the food and all the exciting things. Uh, However, after a little while, like the gods, the humans eventually grew tired and began to complain about their work. And the noise of this complaining Parents, if you've ever heard complaining, right, you understand. The noise of this complaining annoyed the big gods. And as a result, the gods sent a flood to wipe out the humans so they would stop annoying them. But before the flood was sent, some of the littler gods pitied the humans, and they spared a man by the name of Atrahasis so that all of humanity wouldn't be destroyed. That's the epic of Atrahasis. And I'm sure some of you noticed some similarities between this story and Genesis 1 through 11. The reason for the similarity is that Genesis 1 through 11 was written both as an account of Yahweh's creation activity, but also as an argument against the other gods and religions of the time. So it was telling us about what Yahweh has done in his creating and also arguing against what the people of other religions thought their gods did. So therefore... Right, if we consider Genesis 1, 26 to 31 in light of knowing that it's an argument against the Akkadian epic of Atrahasis, for example, we learn that unlike what others believed, that God's made people to do the stuff that they hated, it's actually Yahweh who is the sole creator of all things, who created us and everything, not because he was lazy, but because he, it pleased him to do so. It pleased him to do so. Whereas the Akkadians believed they were created by lazy gods to do the work the gods hated to do, only to be later destroyed by the gods because of their annoyance, Genesis tells of a loving God who created humanity not because he needed them to meet his needs, but because he wanted to be with us. He wanted to be with us. Furthermore, Genesis shows that people were created as God's image bearers. So rather than being created to do the work God's hated, we were created to do God's work, to bear God's image and to represent God to the rest of creation. And just as we read above, a big part of our image-bearing responsibility is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that means for us, God loves life. And he loves flourishing of his people. And so we are to be participants in that life-giving, flourishing activity that God so loves. And what's amazing here, right, is we all, 
no matter what you believe, no matter what you think, are God's image bearers. That, that is who all of us are. That's what it means to be a person, is to bear God's image. It's pretty amazing. And as his image bearers, we represent God to the rest of the creation. It's an amazing truth. The issue, however, is that when we read ahead in this story, we see that our ability to bear God's image has been corrupted by the fall and Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. So in Genesis 3, what happens is we learn that because of Adam and Eve's sin, the image-bearing work they were created to do was made difficult. In Genesis 3.16, God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then in Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And continuing then in verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And suddenly, because of sin, the good image-bearing work Adam and Eve were created to do became difficult. And yet, though difficult, the purpose of humanity didn't change. It doesn't change. People are still created in God's image and are still God's representatives to the world. What changes, however, is the simplicity of the task and humanity's capacity to represent God well. And so the Israelites, moving forward, have this question in their mind that we kind of see running throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And that question is in the back of their head, and it's this, how will we as Israelites and, human, and humans represent God well. If we are God's image bearers and representatives, how will we bear God's image now that sin has corrupted us and everything? How will we do what we were created to do now that sin has entered the world? And what we learn as we read the story is that people represent God horribly, right? They don't do a good job. They do a terrible job. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Israel does a terrible job of representing God, and they continually turn from him. And so even though God created people to be a beacon of light, a beacon of life and flourishing to the world, God's people turned from him and did wicked things. And yet, I love that, right? And yet. The good news of Jesus is in part that God does not simply leave us to die in our sin. Rather, God comes to us in Jesus in order to save us from our sin and to show us how to bear his image in a fallen world. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember Pastor Ash preached from this passage, um, but it's super helpful for us here as well, so we're going to read it. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful. So as the Israelites were trying to figure out how to faithfully bear God's image in a fallen and broken world, what does God do? He comes to them in the person of Jesus and reveals what it looks like to be the most human they could ever be. However, the exemplar they received wasn't at all what they expected, right? The Israelites expected the Messiah, their Savior, who they were waiting on, to bring them power so that they could defeat Rome, but Jesus, their Savior, their Messiah, brought power in weakness. The Israelites expected their Messiah to come with a sword and turn them into a powerful empire, but Jesus came as a slave and was killed in humiliation. Jesus showed us that to bear God's image well and really to be fully the most human, like if you just are like, man, I really want to be as human as I can be, it means to be humbled and to be brought low. In Jesus, we see what it means to represent God well is to empty ourselves as servants for the sake of building others up. In Jesus, we see that salvation comes not from the power of empires, but from strength found in weakness and through faith in the one who took on ultimate weakness for our sake. Church, this is our call, right? This is what we're made to do. We are made to be a self-emptying people to be humble, to lay ourselves down for the benefit of those around us, to give what we have to people in low places, to enter into those low places with those around us. And no, right, it's not easy. You're all looking at me like, what in the world? Like, I've gotta be low, I've gotta be brought down, I've gotta be humble, it's not easy, right? And it doesn't look like success. In fact, it may even look like we're failing. Uh, One of my professors said this great line about this passage. He said, being like Jesus means that as Christians, when we're winning to the world, it looks like we're losing. If you want to be like Jesus, it's going to look like we're losing. To bear God's image well in a fallen world means to counterculturally empty ourselves for the benefit of the low around us. And this is what it means to be in Christ. And this is the life church to which we are called. And so to answer question one, what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? It means like Jesus, emptying ourselves for the benefit of those around us. Like Jesus, emptying ourselves for the benefit of those around us. That brings us to our second question then. How might being an image bearer of God shape our relationship with the children and the families in our lives? Or in other words, how might like our purpose as humans to be a self-emptying people shape the way that we then relate to the children and families here in our church? How do we do that? If bearing God's image means that we empty ourselves, that we lay down our lives for the benefit of others, then we as a church and as individuals who make up that church are called to empty ourselves in such a way that it leads to helping children become and remain followers of Jesus. And right, this is obviously going to look different for different people. And since parents have and will have the greatest influence on their kids being and remaining followers of Jesus, we're going to start with them. However, Since family ministry is our whole church family ministering to and caring for the families in our church, there are many ways for us who don't have kids 
to also help too. And so we're gonna get to us after the parents. But parents, how can you empty yourselves and be like Jesus? How can you lay yourselves down in such a way that it best helps your kids become followers of Jesus forever? How can we do this? How do you do this? Christian Smith and uh, Amy Adamzik, whose names uh, were up on the screen before, they wrote a great book in 2021 entitled Handing Down the Faith, and in it, they detail how American religious parents approach the handing down of their religious practices and beliefs to their children, and of special importance to them is to show, based on their years and years of research, the best things parents can do to promote the future religious participation of their children. And they have many examples, but for our purposes here, I want to share just four of the top ways that they've found that parents can increase the likelihood that their children will remain in their religion into and through adulthood. Increase the likelihood. What is helpful to note here um, at the outset is that like doing one of these things is great, but doing all of these things is exponentially greater. So it's like you do one and it's good, but the more you do, it increases. So four ways parents can increase the likelihood their children will remain Christians into adulthood. Number one, they say, crucial in the parental transmission of religion to children is having generally warm, affirming relations with them. Parents can be very invested in and intentional about religious transmission, but if they have emotionally distant and critical relationships with their kids, their efforts are likely to fail or backfire. So the more warm, loving, and kind you are to your children, the more receptive they will be to what you have to say about following Jesus. And if you're thinking, like, what does it look like? Like, I don't know what kindness looks like or warmth. What does it look like to be warm and kind? Uh, just right? Go look at Jesus. Look at how he acted to the people he was around. He spoke softly to them. He didn't lash out at them. He encouraged them. He built them up. He loved them. Be consistently warm and kind to your children. That's number one. Number two, they say the most effective parent conversations about religion with children are actually children-centered rather than parent-centered. And this means that conversations about Jesus or the Bible or church should consist mostly of the children asking questions and talking more while parents mostly listen. However, like this doesn't mean, parents, that you should never say anything, that you should never bring things up. Rather, it means that in conversation, parents are trying to help children understand their religious faith and practices. The conversations are open, they're not rigid or highly controlled, and the larger relationship between parents and children is actually therein nurtured. Like You build a good relationship with your kids when you ask them questions. The flip side of this is that if parents talk too much or demand too much without like giving explanations, the conversations become counterproductive. So have children-centered conversation with your kids. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. That's second. Number three, they say too much or too little religious socialization by parents tends to undermine the transmission of religious faith to children. Religion seems most effectively passed on to children by parents who are intentional, consistent, and actively engaged, but neither hands-off nor overbearing. 
And so this means that if you want your children to remain followers of Jesus forever, things like regular church attendance and church participation is a great thing, but like don't only do church activities. <laughs> like have friends outside of church, go and do other things outside of church, come consistently, be here, but don't let it be the only thing that your kids can do, right? Do other things as well. Come to church regularly, but be with people outside of church too. That's number three. And finally, number four, they say parental consistency in word and deed rules and meaningful intentions affects the success of religious transmission to children. Perceptions of hypocrisy when parents do not act in congruence with their religious teachings or when parents follow the letter but not the meaning of the law, such as parents insisting like on praying in Hebrew, for example, but unable to explain what the prayers mean, reduce children's interests in carrying forward the religious faith and practice of their parents. So basically, don't force your kids to recite the creeds and do the catechism without giving them the why behind it. Right? We all learn better when we know the why behind the what. Got to know the why behind the what. So absolutely pray. Absolutely do catechism and creeds and have your kids read their Bible, but be sure to explain why they should be doing those things. Like, why does that matter? And if you don't know, like if you're sitting there like, man, I don't know. Why do we do, <laughs> why do, we do the creeds? Why do we do read our Bibles and those kinds of things? Right? That's what the pastors are here for. That's what Ashley and myself and Rob are here to do to help you with those kinds of things. So be consistent and tell them why you do the spiritual practices that you do. That's number four. So to recap, parents, how can you lay down your lives for your kids and empty yourselves like Jesus in order that they might remain followers of Jesus forever? Just recap, you can have warm and loving relationships with them, have children-centered conversations about faith with them, regularly attend church but not make church the only thing that you do, and lastly, be consistent in the spiritual practices that you do and the reasons that you do them. And the hard reality, right, just as I'm reading through these things, is like this requires laying down other things and even maybe giving up your own desires for the benefit of your kids. Right? That's a hard thing. Being consistent in what you say to them, coming to church regularly, having child-centered faith conversations, and being warm to your kids is not easy. It requires sacrifice. Like, it might even mean giving up other activities or working less or changing family schedules or adjusting your own attitude for these things to happen. However, and I cannot stress this enough, doing these four things will have a greater impact on your children becoming and remaining followers of Jesus than anything else you do or they do. And the more of them that you do, the greater the lifelong impact will be on your children, and these are just four. That book, Handing Down the Faith, has more. So if you like nail these four and you're like, oh, I'm ready for five through 20, <laughs> that book is great for you. So Handing Down the Faith. For the rest of us, though, who aren't parents, we have a responsibility. It's our job to help the parents in our church do these things well. We're to minister to and care for the families in our church. And so this means that we should all, at the very least, care about the kids in our church and want them to remain followers of Jesus forever, right? Can we agree to want that? <laughs> yes, we want that. And as a result, we will need to empty ourselves for their sake. That could mean like small groups that you're babysitting for parents in your group when they're tired and need a break. Like offer those kinds of things. Ask them if they need that. 
It could mean bringing parents meals or offering to help them in some way. Like when, it, when you're tired, it's harder to do loving things. I know this from experience, right? When I'm tired, I don't do a great job of loving other people around me. So it could mean bringing meals. Or for some of us, it could simply just mean considering the needs of parents in our church for the first time, right? Like some of us have probably gone around and been like, oh, that's not my prob, not my job. I don't need to worry about that. And parents, like, please let us know, like, the things that you need. Uh, what's really cool, I think, is, like, when you make a need known to us, you're allowing us to grow in our likeness of Christ because you're giving us an opportunity to lay ourselves down for your benefit. So please let us know. And church, the more that we empty ourselves collectively, the more we'll build up those around us and the more likely the kids in our church will be to follow Jesus forever. It's pretty awesome. This is what it looks like to minister to the families in our church. So to answer question two, how might being an image bearer of God shape our relationship with the children and families in our lives? The answer is it should lead us to empty ourselves for their benefit. Just like Jesus, we're called to empty ourselves for their benefit. This brings us to our third and uh, last question. You're all like, hey, Tim, what about this youth thing? Uh, we want to know how is all of the above informed what we do in Redemption Youth, right? We want to know about that. How does our call to be a self-emptying people influence what we do down in Redemption Youth? Well, the big thing I just want to point out here is uh, no matter how good my lessons are or how loving our leaders are or how great the relationships are, right? Redemption youth will only and can only ever be a supplement to what happens at home. And that's why, really, we've been spending this time, so much time discussing the importance of parents and supporting families and is why we'll continue to do so. We're gonna keep on doing this because it matters. And it's why my goal, our goal for Redemption Youth is to supplement what you do at home well. Like we wanna do our best job when your kids are here to supplement the stuff that they're getting from you guys as best as we possibly can. And so every Sunday that we meet, we do five things. Becca mentioned these in her call to worship. Five things that we have fun, we recite a creed. This fall we've been doing the Nicene Creed just like we did together this morning. We worship through song, we pray, and we hear from God's word. And this fall, it's been really cool. We've been going through God's grand story in the Bible and looking at the covenants that he made with Israel and the church, how the church did a terrible job of following their end of the covenant and how God loved them in spite of that. And in the spring, we're going to find out who is Jesus. That's what we're going to look at this spring, try and figure out who is Jesus, spending time in the New Testament. And we also dedicate a few weeks to answering questions about God and the Bible or life that our students have. And largely, the reason that we do that is so that we can prioritize doing similar practices to the four that Smith and Adamsick listed above that we talked about. Right? We want to do the same stuff that we're asking you guys to do. And then after Sunday is over, on Tuesday, Robin and I uh, actually send out a family ministry email to all the parents, which hopefully parents who've seen this, if you haven't, look for it on Tuesday. Uh, family ministry email to all the parents, which has a link in it where you can read through what was taught on Sunday in Redemption Kids and in Redemption Youth, and then it gives examples of how parents can continue those conversations with your kids throughout the week. And so I basically just provide a summarized version of what it is that we discussed on Sunday in youth, as well as you know one or two suggestions for how you as parents can continue to talk about 
what was taught when you're at home. And it's really so that you can have suggestions for those warm, consistent, child-centered conversations that we talked about. And in this, all of this, it's my goal to provide parents with a supplement to the work you're already doing. We don't expect you, right, to be Bible scholars. Some of you might be. We don't expect that by any means, and so we try and provide you with the tools to have conversations with your kids that may be out of your comfort zone. Right? We want to help you in that. And really, in everything we do, it's with the goal of helping your kids become lifelong followers of Jesus. That's what we want more than anything. We want your kids to know Jesus and love him forever. We don't want to offer like programs or things that are ineffective, and we want to equip parents with the tools needed to help your kids become and remain followers of Jesus. And so just as you empty yourselves for their sake at home, we're going to empty ourselves for their sake here. Okay? We're in it with you. So how does all of the above inform what we do in Redemption Youth? Well, it encourages us to strive to empty ourselves through supporting and supplementing the parent-child discipleship relationship. It encourages us to strive to empty ourselves through supporting and supplementing the parent-child discipleship relationship. That's number three. And as we close, like, I, I know we've covered a lot. It was, I was laughing this morning. I was like reading through it, and I was like, man, there's so much in here. We've covered a lot of stuff. You're probably like, do you even remember the Epic of Atrahasis? You're like, that was so long ago. Um, I also know, right, some of us might be feeling overwhelmed or maybe a little inadequate or just like, man, I need help. And so if that's you, please know that we're in it with you. You don't have to parent alone. You don't have to lead alone. We as pastors and as a whole church, right, we're here to support you, to love you, and all you have to do is let us know. You can mark that in your prayer request later and we'll follow up with you. Let us know, please. We want to help and serve. But I think that for all of us, no matter how we're feeling, it's important to remember that even though we can't see it, even though we can't see it, God is at work in the conversations and relationships that we have with kids, and he is shaping them. God is at work in the conversations. He's shaping them in ways we can't see yet, and he's faithful today, tomorrow. He's faithful next year, the same as he was yesterday. And so even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, we do all of this because the best way we can help the kids in our lives become and remain followers of Jesus is by recognizing that our ability to do so is directly tied to our willingness as God's image bearers to empty ourselves for the benefit of the children and families around us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.